Well, we're glad to be back in camp meeting again. This is our third year back here. This year we brought a few more folks along with us. We had 17 last year. We now have 26. We keep on coming and telling how many will come along with us. There's a verse in the 11th Psalm that uh, I found one day while I was reading the Psalms that will be the main verse of our message this morning. In the third verse of the 11th Psalm, it says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What foundations was the psalmist talking about? He was talking about foundation truth. He was talking about those truths that make the Church of God different than every other group in existence. What if those foundations are destroyed by men? What can the righteous do? Well, I hope before we're through this morning, we'll find out what the righteous can do. Now, we know that the foundation of the Church can never be destroyed, and I want to show you a few verses that explain that. And I'm glad to see that you have your Bibles, especially young people. One of the first times I ever preached was in a congregation in Evanston, Illinois. It was on a missionary Sunday in an afternoon. And as I got up to the pulpit from where I sat, I looked out at the back of the building, and right above the door was a sign that said, Preach the Word. And ever since that time, I realized that's what I need to do, and you need to hear. And if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be a lot in the Word this morning, and I hope the Word is in you. We want to read the Word of God. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Whatever opinion or thought or interpretation I have uh, is totally inadequate compared to the Word. So I like to read a lot of the Word. Over in Ephesians 2 and 19, we'll begin. I want to show you, first of all, that the foundation of the church will not be destroyed. For he says, Paul says to they and us, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. See, that's why the foundation of the church can never be destroyed, because it is built on Christ. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Jesus said over in Matthew 16, and 18, we'll start at 15. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Simon Peter, verse 16, answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. 
And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is the church builder. The church that we believe and belong to was built and is being built by Jesus. He built it upon himself, and the foundation truth of that church is what Peter said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. That means a whole lot more than a lot of people think this morning. It means a whole lot more than the superficial and shallow church world believes in this morning. To be the Christ, the Son of the living God, was to be the Savior of the whole human race. He was to be the anointed one who came into the world to uh, live and to die and to rise again to make it possible that you and I and everyone might be saved. We want to talk about the Church of God this morning. I love it. I love it with all my heart. I love the head of the church. I love everything about the church. Some people say there's a lot of things wrong with the church. There isn't anything wrong with the church. There's not a thing wrong with the church. Oh, there's a lot of things wrong with the pseudo and professing church. Surely there is. But there's nothing wrong with the real church. And I hope we realize that and take courage in that as we travel along in the scriptures this morning. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's doing that and has been doing that. Every other church has been built on someone else or on something else. But the church of God is built by Jesus. He built it upon himself and is building it upon himself. Some people think that the church is something invisible. It's an invisible something or other that we just believe in. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that it is a very visible entity. It is very real and it is in this world. Let's turn to Acts 2 and 46. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. God added real people to a real body, a real church that were being saved daily. They continued breaking bread from house to house, eating their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, invisible people cannot do that. This church is very real, and it is in the world. It is not an invisible something or other. For example, go over to Acts 8 and 1 with me and see what Saul was doing here. Saul was consenting unto his death. That was Stephen, and he wasn't invisible when he was dying. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Now you tell me if the church is invisible, how in the world he could ever make havoc of something he couldn't see, or something he couldn't feel, something he couldn't do anything about. Why would he even bother with it? No, it was a very real, and he was making very real havoc of the saints of God, entering into everyone's house that he could, inhaling men and women and committing them to prison, persecuting 
Very real people, the saints of God. Acts 20 and 17. We find the apostle Paul gathering together with some invisible people. No, that's not what it says. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. He gave these brethren a charge. Drop down to verse 25. He says, And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. You see, the kingdom of God and the church of God are one and the same thing. That's why we're not looking for a kingdom being set up in, the, in some fanciful millennium in the, in, the, in the future time. We're not looking for that, you see, because the kingdom church has been here for a long, long time. And these folks that are waiting for some, some great uh, uh, kingdom in the future time, uh, I'm afraid that those folks are behind the times. They're still living back there in the Old Testament. They're still living back there where uh, they were looking for this glorious kingdom to come that David talked about and all the prophets talked about. And, and it did come, but you see, they were looking for the same kind of, uh, of glorious earthly kingdom that David had. And when Jesus didn't come to set up that kingdom, you see, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom to these people because that's what their mentality was. That's what they understood was coming. It wasn't until a little later on that church took the place of kingdom, and we understand that better. Uh, and Jesus understood their minds and talked to them about the kingdom, but interchangeably throughout the Gospels and throughout the epistles that are written in the Word of God, kingdom and church are used interchangeably to help us to understand that it was the same thing. And Paul said, I have preached the kingdom of God and shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And so he says this most solemn charge in verse 28 to a very real and visible entity, the church of God. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. Who was he talking to? He's talking to ministers, wasn't he? He was talking to you and I that preach. He was telling us and them, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Up on the wall of our building uh, is the last part of this verse. Feed the church, the church of God is written the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Any stranger that walks into our building, that's the first thing they're going to see. Those letters are that high in black on white. And they say, the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. There's not another church in existence. There's not another religious movement in the world that can say that they have been purchased with the blood of Christ most of them don't even have the right name. How in the world could they have the right doctrine? They've invented all kinds of names for their particular church or movement or group. But I like what the brother said here. Feed the church of God. That rings to me with biblical truth. And I hope it does to you this morning as well. It's not an invisible something, but it is a visible entity. Well, what is the church? What is the work of the church? What are we to do? What in the world do we exist for? What are we in this world for after we come to Christ? Well, we'll find out. 
I think the most important thing that the church is, it is a recipient and dispenser of truth. When you look about uh, around you today and see it, all the denominations and non-denominations and evangelical and fundamental so-called groups and the great rise of that Pentecostal phenomenon throughout this country and the rest of the world, we need to know what the truth is. You can watch television and listen to the radio, and I do. I listen to the radio in my car. I don't watch television much, television preachers much, but I, I listen enough to know what they are saying. and. Uh, uh, I'm always interested in to know what people are talking about in, in regards to the Bible or in regards to religion because I'm not afraid to read anything that they have. I'm not afraid to listen to anything that they have to say because a long time ago I settled it in my heart that I was going to seek earnestly after the truth and the truth was going to be the most important thing in my life. In fact, all I had to do was read one verse to know that. Jesus said, I am the truth. That's all I needed to know. And that's all we need to know, that he is the truth. We are the recipients and the dispenser of truth. Turn to me, turn with me to 1 Timothy 2 and 4. The writer says, who will have, speaking of God, who will have all men to be saved? This is God's will that all men be saved. In the reverse of it, there's another scripture that says, God is not willing that any should perish. So he came at it from both ways. Who will have all men to be saved? This is God's will that all men be saved. And something else, to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Don't you remember reading in the epistles and also the words of Jesus how he warned so many times and so often, especially the Apostle Paul, he warned about false prophets. John warned about uh, trying the spirits in his, his uh, epistle. Paul over and over again said about false brethren and false apostles and those that could transform themselves into angels of uh, light. And if it were possible, I'm... I thank God this morning that it's not possible, but if it were possible, they would even deceive the very elect. I listened to a fellow from Walterboro, Ohio, late at night, or Walterboro, uh, South Carolina, late at night. He claims to be an end-time prophet. He claims to have the message of God, and uh, he is the end-time prophet. Uh, he's a Pentecostal, uh, and he even uh, went off in tongues one night when I was listening to him. Uh, didn't make any sense at all, and it, as it usually doesn't, but he went off in it anyway. And, and he claims that this is the last generation, and, and there isn't going to be any more, and, and on and on and on he goes. But then he starts disseminating something false. Well, any morning time prophet or any evening time prophet is not disseminating anything that's false. He would have us to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy 3 and 14 and 15, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You realize how important that is? We are the pillar and ground of the truth. I remember hearing someone say uh, that came on a campground years ago. I think it was uh, a Methodist uh, preacher who came to a Church of God camp meeting somewhere. I remember it vaguely, but I think I'm right. He sat there and uh, uh, took in the meetings, several of the meetings, and uh, 
he spoke to one of the ministers there, I don't know who it was, but he said, you know, as I've been listening to your preaching and watching your people and listening to the songs and all that, he says, uh, they had some, some of the old prophetic preaching uh, back there more strongly than they do today. And they were talking about uh, what the song was, they were singing this morning about the beast and his image and all that goes along with that in the book of Revelation. And he said, you know, to me, it seems like you folks are uh, 75 years ahead of the rest of the religious world in your concept of truth, in your revelation from God. And certainly we should be. You've got to remember this movement is a hundred and some years old. And... Uh, We've been around a long time, and God has been working in his church to restore the evening light throughout the world, not only in this country, but through the rest of the world. And it is founded upon truth. And if we ever get to the place where we are going to compromise the truth that those brethren paid a great and dear price for in the, in the early days of this re restoration movement, if we ever come to the place when we are going to compromise on any of those truths, God will leave us to our own devices and get up and find somebody else. He will do it. So it's incumbent upon us not only to be recipients of the truth, but to hold to it dearly, to cherish it with all that's within us, and to disseminate it to our brethren who may be out there in the Baptist church if they're truly saved. And they may be out there in the Pentecostal movement if they're truly saved, or in some other movement, whatever they are called. We are uh, to disseminate to them these truths as well, for they will hear if they're truly saved. They will hear it. John 4 and 23, you remember Jesus talking to this woman at the well? He told her they didn't, they didn't, she didn't know what she was worshiping. I wonder sometimes how many people really know what they're worshiping or who they're worshiping or if they're worshiping at all. Has church just become a habit to a lot of people because they've been brought up ever since they're infants? Or they've been, they've been with it for years and years. I've been around this truth for 34 years now this, this summer. And it's still sweet to me. I still love it. I still enjoy preaching about it. I still enjoy hearing about it. Jesus said to this woman, you worship you know not what in verse 22. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jew. But the hour cometh and now is. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the only way that God will accept our worship. That's the only way in the world any of us can worship God is spirit and in truth. I cannot imagine. In fact, I, back in the Old Testament, it says that those who uh, uh, turn away understanding, I'm paraphrasing it because I don't know it exactly, said those who turn away from understanding will remain in the congregation of the dead. I wonder how many uh, people are in the congregation of the dead this morning throughout the world. They're just winding their way to the service. I don't mean in the real church of God. I mean in the professing churches of the world. Those who don't really know the truth or even love the truth or want the truth. And there are plenty of people out there that don't want this truth. We need, won't need to be naive about that. There are a lot of people that uh, rise up against it. And you know why they do? The, the simple reason is there is an enmity. And that means 
a hostility in the heart of people who are not saved or who are hypocritical or who are just have a pseudo-Christianity, a fake Christianity. There is a hostility in their heart toward truth. That's why they don't receive it. That's why it's difficult to get it to them. But it shouldn't be. In our congregations, there should be a hunger and a thirsting after truth. You see, we don't have it all yet. I've been in this truth for 34 years, and I'm learning a whole lot more about it and what it really means day by day because of this inexhaustible book here, the Bible. And so Jesus said, if, if you're going to worship God, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. We must worship him. It isn't a matter of we can or we can't or whatever. It is an absolute must. There are a couple of words that are very firm in the Bible. One of them is must and the other is shall. Those two words lay it down to what we have to do, what's incumbent upon us. Yes, he is a spirit, and he can only be worshipped in a spiritual way. You see, because God doesn't have anything and doesn't own anything unlike himself, unlike himself. Everything about God and his people and his church is like himself. We need to understand that this morning. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. We are the disseminators of truth. And God is worshipped only in spirit and in truth. He cannot be worshipped any other way. I quoted you the scripture that says that Jesus said he was the truth. In John 8 and 31, turn to that. Jesus said, then said Jesus to those Jews who believe on him, if you continue in my word. See, there's some continuing to do. We just don't come down to the altar and get saved and go out uh, the same way that we came in. See, that's what people are doing in sectarian churches, in churches other than the church of God, the real church of God. They're coming in sinners and they're going out sinners. They might have had some emotion in between the coming in and the going out, but they're going, coming in and going out the same way. But when a person comes to Christ and that change becomes apparent in the heart, even before they walk out the door, then there is a difference. There is a total difference about them. And they will continue in the word. It's not a matter of we hope they, they will continue. They will continue in the word. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Haven't you found that out? Isn't that your experience this morning? Hasn't the truth made you free? Not only made you free from sin, but it's made you free from false doctrine. It has made you free from false brethren. It has made you free from being a hypocrite. It has made you free from all being all hung up on all kinds of inhibitions that you used to have. It makes you free to worship God in the spirit. It makes you free to be the person that God really wants you to be. You know, we've got a mixed up and confused world out here that we were also a part of at one time. They, they don't know, as someone said sometimes, whether they're a foot or horseback, most people who are so confused. But there's no confusion in this. If we know the truth, and we seek after the truth, confusion will have to go. Uh, some people say that I'm confused about this and that and the other thing. You don't have to be confused. Jesus never told his disciples that, uh, that they would be confused all the days of their life. He told them they would be free. He said, and you shall know the truth. Know it. Not just wonder about it. When someone comes to you with something, some interpretation of the Bible... And let's suppose and assume that it is false. You're really saved, and you're seeking after the truth, and you love the truth. When that person comes, uh, I'll tell you an experience. Uh, 
Brother Regal, I read after years ago, would come to a meeting, other than the Church of God, sometimes, somewhere, and he would sit down in the pew, and he would bow his head, and he would say, Lord, tell me what is true, and let me know what is false. And sure enough, everything that came across that pulpit that was true, his heart said, that's, God said, that's from me. And when it was false, wherever he went, the Lord said, I didn't say that. That's not mine. See, that's how we know. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 14 and 6. John 14 and 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the way to the truth, and that will give you life. If you'll accept him, if you'll believe in him and walk with him, he is the way, and he will lead you to the truth, and you will have his life in your soul. Everyone who loves the truth will hear his voice. John 18 and 37. Pilate, speaking to Jesus, said therefore unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Didn't he say, I was the shepherd, and the sheep followed me, and another's voice they're not going to hear? There are a lot of voices out there. You have heard them, and I have heard them. And our young people and others, uh, young converts, are exposed to these voices. But there's only one voice we want to be tuned into. There's only one spirit that we want to be listening to. We, it is the spirit of God in the voice of Jesus that we want to hear. And all other voices we want to shut our ears to. We want to turn them away just like we would turn away a rotten piece of food. We don't want to partake of any of it. We just want to know the truth. If we hear something that's false, we can know what it is and, and turn it away. Everyone who loves the truth will hear his voice. There's a lot of things that the Bible speaks about are compared to the church. It is compared, as we read, to a, a building. It's compared to a temple. It's compared to a body. Uh, it's compared to a house. Uh, it's compared uh, to a family. But I like family, I think, this morning. Don't you? We talked about family, I think in the prayer or in the singing somewhere this morning, family came up. Everybody understands about family. Uh, we know that family has a mother and a father and children, and all of us are part of that uh, and have been uh, ever since we knew anything about the world that we live in. I like to think of the church as a family. I like to think of our congregation as a family. Uh, when one is hurting, we all hurt together. When one is happy, we're all happy together. Uh, I like to, uh, to cause our young people uh, in our congregation to realize that uh, this isn't just uh, three times a week that we meet, the some three, four and a half hours that we meet, but we uh, are concerned about our children and the young people and all the others all throughout the whole week. We meet together a whole lot because we're close by each other. And, uh, uh, for one reason, but the main reason is that we are family. Family is close. Uh, family uh, at home around the, uh, the house with the doors closed, 
uh, can just be themselves and, and they can understand each other and they can be free to discuss anything that goes on in their mind and their heart. So I like the idea that the Bible sets forth about the church as being a family. Because we can talk things over and we can even disagree. Sometimes I have some good discussions with my older son and we disagree about some things uh, without being disagreeable. And, uh, and I try to reason with him. He's not saved. And I try to reason with him uh, about what uh, the Bible really teaches about these things. Uh, he's got a sharp mind and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, an inquiring mind. And he, he wants to know. Uh, he doesn't have the experience, but he wants to know what this means. And that means the other thing. He was brought up in the church of God. So it isn't that he just doesn't know what's going on. This is a divine family that we are a part of. Not just family, it's a divine family. Turn to Ephesians 3 and 14 with me. Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant unto you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. The whole family. Now, you know very well that when you start a family, you don't give that your children somebody else's name. Now, there's no way you're going to give your children somebody else's name. That's why in the Bible, no less than 13 times in the New Testament, we are referred to as the Church of God. Letters to the Church of God at Corinth and to other churches. Paul said he persecuted the Church of God and wasted it. Uh, and he said, give none offense neither to the Jew nor the Greek nor to the Church of God. So why are these people coming up with all these other names? You know why? They have other founders. They have other owners. Doesn't belong to God. Everything that belongs to God has his name on it. That's why Paul says, I bow my knees unto the Father. What's the Father's name? The Father's name is God. And the family in heaven, you know, some of the families up in heaven, and some of the families down here on earth, and some of the family on earth is by and by going to be traveling to heaven. And some of the family up there on earth, uh, up in heaven, is someday going to come back and get that body that's down here on earth. And we're all going to be together in one in that great, great camp meeting up there in the sky. You talk about the blessings of camp meeting, it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. This is a family we're talking about. The whole family in heaven and earth. He bowed his knees unto God by whose name we are. That's why it's the church of God. That's why we don't take anybody else's name. That's why we're not Baptist. I heard, I, I think I told this last year, but some of you didn't hear it. Uh, Elder Shepherd was telling uh, uh, us one time about uh, one of his uh, uh, energetic and enthusiastic uh, women was over in a Baptist church and they got to talking about the church. And she got all excited, and, and Shepherd was just walking by there, and, and she said, And furthermore, your church ain't got no head, because John the Baptist lost his head back then. <laughs> Elder Shepherd said, I, I started for the door. I wanted to get out of it. You see, the name is important. The name is very important because of ownership, of who started it. Who, belong, who it belongs to. It belongs to God, and we are family. We are part of that glorious divine family. 
It's in the Father's name that we uh, are, have our names written in heaven. It's in the Father's book, in the Father's family book up there in heaven. Jesus said to those disciples, they came back all excited about casting out devils and healing diseases. And that's an excitable thing. But he said, don't get so excited about that. As exciting as that is to the saints of God, when people get healed and when devils get cast out, as, as glorious as that is, he says, don't get that excited, he says, but get excited about this one fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, in the Father's book up there in the heavenly world. That's what you should get excited about. And you'll spend a whole lifetime keeping your name there. Yes, you will. Amen. This is a wonderful family. It's in the Father's name, Paul said, and we, and we recognize that, and that's what we are. And you know, a family has children, and how in the world do children get in the world? Let's turn over to John 3 and find out how children get in the family. John 3, and verse 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he came down to verse 5 and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. Nicodemus didn't understand it that way. He thought we had to go back and get born all over again. Jesus was talking about that spiritual birth. He was talking about that birth from above. And so we understand family. When a little child comes into the world, I remember when my first and only granddaughter was born, it was such a wonderful event. She was a sweet little thing, healthy, and uh, had all her members, and everything was fine with her and still is today. And, and we were all glad about uh, that, that my son and, and his wife uh, had uh, a child and that we had a grandchild and it was family we were all happy about that well we are just as happy when a person comes down to this altar and cries their eyes out to God and asks forgiveness with a penitent heart and receives forgiveness by faith and gets saved instantaneously uh, in fact you can get saved quicker spiritually than you can get born physically and so when a child is born spiritually into the kingdom of God that's family that's part of the family. And the rest of the family is all happy about it. If you're not even a blood relative, you're happy about someone getting saved. If you're not happy about someone getting saved, I wonder. I wonder why. That's a blessed event. Just like the physical birth into the natural family, so the spiritual birth into the spiritual family is a blessed event. Everyone that comes down to our altars and seeks after God, I am as happy as I can be for them. And I look for them to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And look for them like a little child that wants to eat right away. I look for those spiritual children to want to know things, have a questioning mind, have a curious mind, asking questions about what the Bible teaches. You see, for a lot of people don't know anything about the Bible today. And when they get saved, they have to learn like a little child. You have to teach them that way. And so we're still talking about family, the church as a family. We have to be born into the family of God, into the church of God. The only way in the world you'll ever get into the church of God. Nobody in 34 years has ever asked me to join the church of God. And I heard somebody else when I was a young convert say the same thing. After he got saved, he was just waiting for with the right answer to someone who would ask him to join the church because he didn't like church joining. And, and uh, he just waited and waited and waited. When I knew him, he was around 17 years after that. And he was still waiting 
waiting for someone to ask him to join the church of God. Well, he just said that because he wanted people to know that. He knew after a little while why nobody asked him to join because when he got down on his knees, and I think it was Brother F.G. Smith preaching at that time when he was there, he said that there were five men, five boys really, at that meeting that got, that got saved out of the 17 that got saved when F.G. Smith was preaching that went into the ministry after that. Well, no one's going to ask you to join the church of God. You have to be born into it. And that's the only way in the world that you'll ever get in. If, you're never, if you never get born again, you'll never get into this church. But if you get born again, you will automatically be a member of this church, just like you are automatically a member of your family when you were born physically. That's so simple that even a child can understand that. You know, one thing I love about the gospel, it is simple enough for... Uh, Simple minds and even children to understand the simple truths of the gospel. Nothing complicated. Human religion is complicated. Uh, a secular humanist religion, which is taught in all our public school system, is complicated mess. And uh, all other uh, uh, Eastern cults and religions and gurus, all of it is complicated. But not the gospel. Jesus, if you remember and realize, was the most brilliant man that ever lived. He knew everything about everything. We lost our microphones. I'll have to talk louder. And so he understood everything. And yet in simple terms, he taught those disciples. They were simple men anyway. The most brilliant man that, that, uh, that Jesus ever taught was Paul, who had uh, great knowledge sitting at the feet of some great teachers. And God greatly used him. But that doesn't mean he didn't use the rest of them. And that doesn't mean the rest of them didn't have something to say in this word of God. No, it doesn't mean that at all. God will save a brilliant man as well as an ignorant man. God will save a little child as well as an old man and old woman. God will save anybody at any time. For he searches throughout the world according to the word. His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole world. And who is he looking for? What is he looking for? They that will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's who God is looking for. He's looking for people to save. He's not willing that any should perish. He's, uh, he's, it is his will that all uh, be saved. And he said, it is the those who do his will will abide forever. And those who belong to his church and do his will will abide forever. Well, we're still talking about family. And when you get born again, you become part of this glorious family. The church of God and you can remain in it as long as you live right John 1 and 12 and 13 but as many or 11 he came unto his own and his own received him not but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God you see when you come down to the altar and you ask the Lord for forgiveness he has to give you the power to repent and to confess and to forsake your sins because it isn't normal to a proud human being. It isn't normal for a big strong man or a headstrong woman to come down and humble themselves before others and cry out their heart to a God they cannot see and to believe by faith a Christ who died for them. That's, that's not the work of a proud heart. It is a contrite heart and God says he's not going to despise that kind of person. Some children, you know, are smarter than you think. They understand a whole lot more than they can say. And they can get saved too. If a child can commit sin, a child can get saved. And so, we know that to be true. We are sons and daughters in the family of God now. In this present world. And that's family, isn't it? Let's, let's look at what Paul said in, in Ephesians. I'm taking my time this morning. I hope you don't mind. I hope you 
are looking with me and reading along with me, you know, sometimes when you read along with the preacher, you can find something you didn't find before. I mean, if you sit there without the Bible, if people come to the church meetings uh, time and time again I th without their Bibles, I think it's an indictment against the preacher. Uh, if people come to service over and over again and leave their Bibles behind, it may be they're looking for entertainment. And I want you to know that I don't entertain. I'm not an entertaining preacher. I know this word means a whole lot more than what I have to say. And it has more power than what I, what I have to say. I don't have any little ditties. I don't have too many stories. I don't have anything to say but what this word says. And if you're a preacher of the gospel, the everlasting gospel, you need to be the same way. Get your people to bring the Bible with them. Tell them to read along with you so that maybe some, they'll learn something while you're reading it that they didn't know before, but if they don't come with the Bible, all they're going to do is hear you say it. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 5 and 22. We're talking about family yet now. And he said, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. That's the beginning of the family. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now the church has been referred to as a body. And he is the savior of the body. And so he makes this comparison between a husband and their association with each other. He continues by saying, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then turns around to the husbands and says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then he states why he gave himself for the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse it. That he might purge it. That he might purify it. That he might cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. The last time I was here, I preached on the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, some people think, oh, I don't want to hear. I heard someone say one time, why do you always talk about doctrine? Why don't you talk about Christ and these other things? Why is doctrine so important? I looked up uh, some verses just this morning. And over and over again, it emphasizes the importance of doctrine. Jesus said, if any man will do my will, his will, the, the Father's will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it's mine or, uh, or his. And so doctrine is important. Truth is doctrine. And we need to understand wh what, uh, what the Bible teaches. Sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word that he might present it to himself. You see, he isn't presenting, presenting the worldly sect of religion to himself. They don't even belong to him. They don't want to belong to him. I know what I'm talking about because I've talked with people of almost every persuasion I could hear of down through the years and almost in mass, almost 100%, I have a clear rejection of the truth. And I'll tell you what truth it is a little later. He might present it unto himself a glorious church, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's, uh, that's uh, going back to the Old Testament sacrifice, which had to be perfect before it could be acceptable by, to God. It had to be perfect before it could be offered before God, that animal that they had. That's what he's referring to, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that it should be holy and without blemish. We're talking about this family now, and, and we're talking about Jesus, uh, this mystery that he's talking about, and we'll get down to that. So men ought, ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, even as the Lord the church. What does the Lord love more in the world than the church? Nothing. He loves the world. We know that. He wants to save everyone. But he loves the church more than anything else. 
They are the apple of his eye. We are something special in the sight of God. We may not be in the world, but we are something special in the sight of God. We, are, uh, we may be a bunch of nobodies in this world, but we're somebody to God because he has something for us to do. We sing a song, and I hope you do too. It says, work for the night is coming. Work for the time of working for people receiving this everlasting gospel, this pure gospel, to produce this glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and without blemish. The time that we have left to win people to this is passing us by. So the writer said, work for the night is coming. If you get saved and you don't want to work, it won't be long and you won't be saved anymore. Because if you ever get into this church, it is, this is a militant church. This is a working church. We just don't come to meeting on Sunday morning and forget about Sunday night and Wednesday. We've got children, eight, nine, and 12 years old that come to every one of our meetings. Oh, we have to go pick them up, but we're glad to do it. And they come to every one of our And when they're missing from the meeting, we want to know why, and we care for them. And they feel it as well. Because, you know, they might hear something on Wednesday that they need that they didn't need on Sunday morning. And so you need to realize that they need to be at meeting. I tell the children, why the most that our meetings go is an hour and a half. And so you're only talking about four and a half hours of the whole week that you, that you prepare and, and come to meeting. Uh, but we fellowship a whole lot more than that. We just don't meet together. I pity the people that think that just Sunday morning is the time that they go to service. And that's all the religion they want for the rest of the week. And it's probably all the religion they have and all the religion they display out to the world. But you know, we're talking about a church that works. We're talking about a church that's not running itself ragged and doing this, that, and the other thing, all kinds of programs. We don't have any programs at all in our, in our congregation. I tell our young people, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I'm not going to be a babysitter to you. I'll tell you what the Word of God says. I'll supply you with all the books I can on these truths. Then you need to get down on your knees and ask God to help you along the way. And it makes my job a whole lot easier. Not that I'm trying to do that, but it makes it a whole lot easier if they work it out themselves. You see, if you're counting on somebody else for your religion and for your experience, you're going to wake up someday and find out they might have lost theirs and you lost yours as well. This is a glorious church we're talking about, not some religious sect full of uh, uh, disbelievers, uh, make-believers, and unbelievers. No, we're not talking about that. Uh, some uh, church that has uh, its particular name picked out of the hat somewhere, uh, and their doctrine the same way, and they take the word of God and twist it this way and twist it that way, and some people just gobble it right down. I watch some of these television preachers, and they'll tell something absolutely false that the Bible teaches, and, and I know what is true when he says it, and they'll sit there, nod their head, and say amen to something so false it doesn't even resemble the Bible. You see, you can people who, in order to accept false doctrine and false teachings or a false spirit, when John said, "Try the spirits," he was talking about teachers. And when uh, you see, they have to gain your mind, they have to gain your ascendancy, they have to gain your acceptance in order for you to believe it. And when they do believe it then they'll turn away the truth. They'll do it. When they accept something false, because every false sect, every false doctrine has to have a false spirit accompanying it. And when you finally give consent to that false spirit and that false doctrine, you are hooked on it. I talk to a lot of Pentecostal people. I don't know if they're in here this morning or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. I find out that those Pentecostals that have come under the power of this tongue spirit, 
And I've talked to some intelligent people that have come under it, and it amazes me that they could be so fooled by it, but they are. And once they have come under this tongues thing, it'll take a deliverance by God to get them out of it. They just don't come naturally after that. When they get imbibed with this tongues, they hardly come at all. But if they come, they're going to have to be delivered from that tongue spirit. Because that's exactly what it is, and we need to expose it for what it is. You know, we need to preach the truth, but there's also something else that we need to do. We need to dis expose the false teachings around so that we don't fall into any of them. Because God doesn't lead us there. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit would come and he's come to this church, he would guide us into all truth. And while he's guiding us, guiding us into all truth, he's also going to tell us what is false as well. So that this church will be a glorious church. He said, for this cause shall a man, verse 31, leave his father and his mother and shall be joined unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh. Uh, this is a great mystery and the word mystery is a secret. This is a great secret, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And that's a beautiful metaphor of the way husbands and wives should, should live together. But the most important thing is that he said husband and wife singular. You see, Jesus is no polygamist. He doesn't have more than one wife. Uh, the idea of a husband and wife is marriage. And the Bible says that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church of God is the bride. And he does not practice polygamy. He does not own two brides, three brides, 300 brides. He doesn't have any but one. There's only one church that exists in the world as far as God is concerned. And it is the church of God. If I don't say anything this morning that you understand or that you retain in your mind, retain this one fact. God only has one church. He doesn't have these religious sects out there. And if you know anybody that's saved out there, go to them and tell them to get out of there. They don't belong there. Any place that preaches false doctrine, uh, God's people don't belong there. And if there's a church of God congregation that imbibes false doctrine and accepts anything that's false contrary to the sound teachings of the pioneers and the sound teachings of the apostles and the sound teachings of Jesus, you have no more right to stay there anymore. Why do we know this? Because in the book of Revelation, he's talked about Babylon and its fallen state. All places that imbibe false doctrine are Babylon. And, and it's an allusion to the old Babylon that kept the people of God in bondage back there. The old nation of Babylon that kept them in bondage and wouldn't let them go. And to the place where they said to them, why don't you sing us a song of Zion? Play us an old song uh, of your religion. And they said, how can we sing the songs of Zion when we're not even there? They hung their harps on the willow trees and said, we're in a strange land and we can't sing the songs of Zion in a strange land and no true saint of God can really be free when they're sitting in a religious sect I don't care what their name is or whatever it is if they imbibe false doctrine if they disseminate false doctrine no saint of God can be free in that place what they need to do is do what this says what the writer said in Revelation 18 4 come out of her my people and touch not the unclean thing and be not partakers of her sin come out of those things. This is still a come out movement. I don't care if it's 106, 100 some years old. We're still preaching come out of everything unlike God. And we need to do that. Now, ministers, you need to have that as a priority in your message to do our brethren that are out there in the sectarian churches. Those people that are getting saved in the big evangelistic services. Those people that may be getting saved by listening to someone on radio. You know, there's still people getting saved outside the Church of God confines. And they are Church of God when they get saved. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And you and I need to go to 
them and say, come over to Zion. Uh, we took our harps off the willow trees a hundred years ago, and we're singing the songs of Zion. We sing all the songs of Zion back home. We've got two books. Uh, we found a book, um, the 1953 edition of the Anderson book, which has a lot of good old songs in there from the pioneers. And, and we use that in our service. And then we found those folks over in Guthrie, Oklahoma, and, and we... Uh, and we got the book, their evening light book, and found some other songs that we didn't have. And we sing almost exclusively the Reformation songs so our young people know them. But there's a lot of young people don't know them today. They're singing a lot of something else. You like the idea of family? You like the idea of belonging to the family? You know, family is close. That's the way the church is. We may not even know each other, meet each other for the first time, but if you're saved and I'm saved, we have a blood relationship, don't we? A spiritual blood relationship. We ought to be able to have sweet fellowship right now. Even though we don't know each other. I mean, when you're genuine. You can't really have fellowship with make-believers. You can't have fellowship with disbelievers. You ever hear that word before? I just found that a little while ago. You know what a disbeliever is? It's someone who rejects the truth of your statement. That's a disbeliever. And there are plenty of make-believers, and there are plenty of unbelievers, and we need to have more true believers. I like the idea of family. That's the way the church is. That's the way I tried to make our congregation. The church is not confined to a race or a nation or a culture. It's not confined to that, the church of God. It may be to others. You go over, Hinduism is pretty well confined to India. Uh, the, Islam is confined primarily to the Middle East. The Mormons are confined to Utah or wherever it is and around the country. But the church of God, its message and its truth is not confined by race, by nation, by culture. It is universal in its scope. It embraces the whole human race. You can't get a broader view of the church than that. There is no broader view of the church than that. We're just not a narrow sect of, uh, of a bunch of fanatics meeting together once a year in this camp meeting and going back to our place. No, we're a part of something so big that you and I don't even realize it. We don't even realize how many saints God has in the world. After all, there's five billion people, and there surely ought to be a whole lot of saints among them, wouldn't you think? I mean, some people in the rest of the world are embracing this gospel far better than we are in this country. Uh, what this country is doing is running itself ragged into hell. That's what the majority of this country is doing. They can't get there fast enough. I was uh, over the other day uh, listening to a conversation, and, and this young fellow said uh, uh, it was early in the morning, and he had just got off of work on the uh, third shift. And, and I didn't know him, but I overheard his conversation because there were others around there, and I just happened to tune into what he was saying. And, and he said, you know, we got a, uh, an emergency call this morning. This morning he was a, a paramedic, apparently. And he said, we found this guy uh, with no response. That's their language, no response. He was dead, 24 years old. They have some kind of machine, and I think someone's a nurse here and knows what it is. I think you are a nurse. They have some kind of machine they put on their chest to get their heart going again, and it puts pressure, right? Put some kind of pressure on their chest. He said the first pressure broke all of his ribs because he was dead. He OD'd on drugs because that's what he wanted to do, kill himself. And he did. Our generation can't kill themselves fast enough. That's what's happening. 
We have a generation that was brought up in this secular humanist religion in the school system that says man is all that matters. We've got to fight this thing, not, not just through politics. We've got to fight the mentality of this that our children are being exposed to. We've got to get the word of God so good in their hearts and in their, in their minds that they're going to reject this secular humanist religion. That's what we've got to do. If we can't start a school of our own, we've got to do everything we can to teach them what is right so that we can override this religious power of secular humanism. And I hope you're doing it. I hope the ministers are doing that because it's vitally important to the children, to their souls. We can't confine this church to cultures. It's not a divided church either. Someone, someone preached a message one time and said, the church beyond division, I'd say it meant to that. Why is the church beyond division? Because the true, true church will refuse to be divided. It will refuse all efforts of disunity and discord and false brethren and false teachings and false emotionalism. The church will refuse to be divided. It will not split up into camps over here and camps over there and camps somewhere else. I want to tell you what happens. What can the righteous do when the foundation truths are gone? When the foundation truths are eroded? When people begin to put away? You know, uh, you can do just as much damage by laying down the truth as you can imbibing false doctrine. You can just set it aside and talk about it uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, sentimentally. You can talk about truth sentimentally, but you've laid it aside. You can do just as much damage that way as you can imbibing an absolute false doctrine. Well, we're not divided up. What I started to say is when movements split, and generally they split over false doctrine, and then begin to disseminate it to the rest and, and, and gather them in to their movements. Then God's people are to remain true or if the church of God begins to imbibe. That's what happened in Racine, Wisconsin, a perfect example of what I'm saying. In Racine, Wisconsin, where I live, Years ago, before I knew anything about the Church of God, they had a thriving congregation among the Danish people. There were a lot of Danish people there. And they had a thriving congregation. And they had a, a preacher come in there who was doing a wonderful job. I'm trying to think of his name. Somebody help me. Morris Johnson. Thank you. Morris Johnson was his name. Church of God preacher through and through from what I could understand from the history of it. Right about in the middle of all of this wonderful activity in this large congregation of the Church of God, Morris Johnson stands up and says, Brethren, I have changed my mind on the millennial doctrine. I now believe it. Right in the middle. He split that church right down the middle. The saints went off and formed their own congregation. That was right. They would not imbibe that false doctrine. They had, you know what they must have had. And finally, they left. And as is usually the case, the false ones had the deed, they had the money, they had the influence, they kept the building, and they carried on. Today, they're a large building over there, five, six, seven hundred people. They have about uh, almost a block-sized building. Maybe they even have more than that. They have two or three services in the morning. And they've imbibed the whole false teaching of Calvinism. They started out with one, then they imbibed the whole thing. Well, the true church went off. If a congregation 
turns to false and will not recant, then God's people must come out of that and separate themselves if they have no place to go. Because God has a separate and apart people. This church we're talking about this morning is something unique beyond our comprehension. It is the greatest thing that has ever come to this world. It is the greatest truth that has ever happened to change the lives and, and manner of conduct of uh, human beings throughout the whole world. It is universal, as I said, in its scope. And it cannot be divided up into this, that, and the other thing. The people that turn away because of false doctrine will have to eat of their own doing. But the saints of God who will stay true, just like some of those brethren did in the seven churches of Asia, Jesus told them what they had to do. Some of them didn't do it and so we don't hear no more about them but others obeyed his voice and did what is right he even told some of them that they had lost their first love and they had to repent all over again why didn't they do it if they would have done it they could have had it again but they didn't do it I know that most people that imbibe false doctrine and fall away seldom come back there's very few of them that ever come back but then there's also very few that ever stay true but when you see the church as the Bible teaches it, when you see it clear and you understand it in your mind and you know what it is in practicality that it's living out in the lives of human beings right before your very eyes, you know that it is real, then you can embrace it as well as anyone else, young or old. And you can understand and know that this is one glorious church and it is without spot or wrinkle. And that comes to my next part of the message and final this the, the standard in this church is holiness. The Bible says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. If you're not holy this morning, you need to get saved because you're not saved if you're not holy. If you're, sa if you're holy, you are saved because holiness is the standard that divides the church of God from every other movement on the face of the earth. And I've talked to people and this is the one cardinal truth. This is the one doctrine that the devil hates more than anything else. I know what I'm talking about because I've talked to hundreds of people down through the years who belong to this, that, and the other thing who denied the truth of personal holiness. They'll sit back there and grind their teeth. They'll, they'll cast your name out as nothing. They'll cause you to tell other people to stay away from those people in the church of God because they preach something where uh, they, this time-worn and sickening statement that they make. Nobody's perfect. Nobody can live holy. You or I or nobody in the world can live without sin and that is the biggest lie the devil has ever told. Because the Bible plainly teaches that without holiness, as Elder Shepherd said, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, if you don't live holy, you're never going to see God and we need to emphasize this in the church of God because with you and I and with all who hear this message it is holiness for us in this life or hell in the next you can mark it down that's the way it is it is holiness that separates the church of God from everything else not simply our message of holiness but uh, but our living that way you see it's a whole lot different Holiness is a standard of conduct in God's church. It is the standard of judgment here uh, uh, also, and sects deny this. They deny holiness as obtainable in this life, and all they that deny this truth will not experience it, of course, and if they do not experience it, they're never going to see God. They're never going to God's heaven. You might as well mark it down in your book right now. Your sisters, your brothers, your mothers, your fathers, uh, your uh, relatives that are not saved, and out there in some particular sect who denies holiness, you can forget about them up to this point of ever being in heaven with you because holiness separates 
the church of God from everything else. Oh, there's other groups that talk about holiness. Uh, uh, this, this fellow who shouts at the top of his voice on the radio that I told you about, he talks about holiness. Uh, he talks a whole lot about it, but then he also uh, sprinkles in something else, you know. It's like having a beautiful salad and then pour arsenic on it. Who wants to eat it after that? Holiness is the standard. It's always been that way. It's been that way. That's, that's what Jesus built it on. He built it on himself and he was holy. And everything that God has is holy. I heard someone else say one time, God is holy. Jesus is holy. The spirit is holy. The whole way from earth to heaven is holy. So how in the world do people think that his, that his own people are not all of a sudden? You see, that doctrine is hated by the devil more than anything else. He's got more people to believe that nobody can live right uh, than you can imagine in the world that we live in. But it is still the standard. In Luke 1 and 74 and 75, a man inspired by God said something. You bear with me now toward the end. I've been doing this whole thing without a glass of water so you can hang in there. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. How? In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Some people like to divide up holiness into uh, something else than what it is. Holiness is living free from sin. That's as simple as I know how to explain it. Living without sin. After you got saved, of course, you can't live that way without being saved. There's no way in the world you can. We understand that and we need to emphasize that as well because some people might think, well, I tried so hard but it didn't work. Of course it isn't going to work if you're not saved. But the weakest saint, the newest saint, even a child, 12 years old that gets saved, is required to live up to this standard of holiness. Live without sin. And he said, didn't he say, he gave us power to become the sons of God? He doesn't leave us there. No more than you would leave your newborn infant laying down somewhere. We had a girl back home take her newborn infant and dump it in an outside toilet with lie in it. She didn't want it. That girl didn't love that child. Somebody rescued the child, but I think it died later. Am I right? I think it did die. They finally found that girl. But you see, God doesn't just leave us when he, when he saves us. He gives us power. Didn't the writer say he came to destroy the works of the devil? What are the works of the devil? Sin, aren't they? In everyone's life that's unsaved? They are the works of the devil. Well, Jesus came to destroy them. Not only did he come to destroy all your sins up to the time you get saved, but he gave you power to live without them from that time on. That's the plan. The whole plan of salvation, the whole plan of Jesus doing and uh, whatever he did in the world and what he's doing now is to restore every person back to what Adam and Eve had. And what did they have? Perfect holiness. That's what they had. Romans 6 and 19. I speak after the manner of man because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members servants, and that's a slave, bought and paid for a slave, didn't belong to anybody else. You didn't belong to yourself, you belonged to, to someone else, and of course that someone else is the devil. After you've yielded your members to uncleanness, to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now, when? After you get saved, yield your members servants, slaves, to righteousness, Unto holiness. That's the natural effect. The cause is salvation. The effect is holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, 
you were free from righteousness. Reverse it. If you are now free from sin, you're a servant of righteousness. God reverses everything the devil's done, you know. Everything the devil says, God has just the opposite because the devil tries to make it opposite. He probably was the one that told somebody to counterfeit money because he was trying to counterfeit Christianity. So that's what he's been doing. He's trying to counterfeit the church of God too. Did you know that? But saints aren't going for it. Saints aren't having a fellowship. That's the works of darkness as well as anything else, isn't it? To counterfeit the church of God. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death? But now, present tense, being made free from sin. Oh, the Baptist fellow says, oh, I'm going to sing a song. The, Baptist, the Negro Baptist now, I think, I think the white people do too, but they say, uh, when I cross over Jordan, I'm going to be free. See, they got an idea that crossing over Jordan is when you die, then you're going to be free from sin. Well, if they don't get free from sin, when they cross over their so-called Jordan, if they aren't free from sin before that, they're never going to make it. Because crossing over the Jordan is not over the death, over the lifeline into death. Crossing over Jordan is a type of the sanctified state. That's what it is. But they don't know that, see. Or they don't want to know it. But... We are free, and we have our fruit unto holiness, and the end is everlasting life. Ephesians 4 and 24 tell us, and that you put on the new man. You ever feel real good sometime? Maybe you feel real good when you came out of a meeting sometime. Boy, you just feel good about everything in the whole meeting, and God was blessing, and God was there. If nothing else happens, if God is there, you feel good. And, and, uh, and you feel real good in your, and you, you might say, I feel like a new man, or I feel like a new person. I feel like a new uh, woman, or uh, I just feel new. Well, Paul says, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness, created now. See, when you get saved, you're like being recreated. It's a recreation. We are created in righteousness and true holiness. You know why I said that? Because there's some false holiness. There's some false fire. Like this fellow on the radio, he talks about holiness, but he's false as $11 bill. I know he is. I've heard other things he said. You see, that's why the brother said true holiness. What is true holiness? True holiness embraces the whole truth of the gospel. Everything about it that's true. And so that's what he wants us to be. That's what the standard is. 1 Thessalonians 3 and 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. I'll tell you, the devil hates that word more than any other. You know that? He hates the word holiness with a passion. He can't stand anybody to mention it. He can't stand anybody to believe it or even think it's possible in this life. He hates that with an absolute anger uh, because I know his children have responded that way to me. But he said to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. You and I have got to be holy when he comes. 
or we're never going to make it into his world. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 7. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. Well, I'm glad to hear that, aren't you? I'm glad to know that we don't have to struggle through this life constantly beating ourselves down because we aren't making it. I'm glad that we don't always have to walk around with a guilty conscience. We don't always have to be feeling condemned and undone and unclean. God has not called us to uncleanness. He hasn't even called the sectarian religious world to uncleanness, but that's what they want. And so that's what they have. But he has called us, who? The church of God. Called everyone who will get saved. He has not called us to uncleanness, but he has called us unto holiness. Yes, holiness is the standard in this world and in the next to come where, that we are going to be judged by. And so it is incumbent upon us to rise up to that experience that will give us a holy heart and a holy life. For Jesus is coming back for a holy people, a prepared people. He's coming back for a holy people to take us back to a holy place. And nothing like himself is going to be in heaven. Anybody that doesn't uh, uh, meet the standard of holiness in this life can just forget about heaven T today, whoever they are and uh, wherever they may be. And I pray, God, there's nobody here like that this morning. If you're not going to get an experience that will make you holy, you might as well forget about heaven because that's a holy place. We even sing a song like that. And I don't know what song the brother is coming up with, but we'll have it here in just a moment. Jesus is coming for a holy people, a prepared and holy people, to take them to a prepared place. And I'm wondering this morning, will you be one of them? May the Lord add his blessing to his word.
might belong to a Church of God congregation and still not belong to the church. You see, as we said, belonging to it is to be born into it. You can be a friend of the family, but you're not really family yet. And you can even be, by your experience of salvation, adopted into a family. But you can't be family until you're born into it. Are you born into it this morning, or are you just part of the congregation? You can be a part of the congregation and not be a part of the family, but God doesn't want it that way. God wants you to be family, and we want you to be family. Will you come and be saved this morning? Yes, Thank you. 